The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places, but there is still much that is fair. And though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. Not my words, but the words of J.R.R. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings, spoken to a group of travellers who are grief-stricken and weary because they've lost a, a friend. Grief. Grief is the emotion of, of loss, isn't it? An emotion of parting, of uh, separation. And grief is something I think we are experiencing now. Every day we get updates, don't we, um, on the coronavirus. Blunt numbers which tell us how many people have now been tested positive for uh, COVID-19. And, and more starkly, how many people have now died in our country because of this pandemic. And not just our country, but countries right across our world. And perhaps the numbers are coming so quickly, so regularly, that we're becoming numb. Numb to, to death. In many ways, we're experiencing grief right now. We're experiencing death. Coldplay had a, a, an album, Viva La Vida, or Death and All of His Friends. We're experiencing not just death, but, but all of his friends as well. Separation from loved ones, from family, from friends, colleagues. Some of us have lost jobs and work and income. And we as a church are experiencing separation. It's now three weeks, 15th of March, the last time we were gathered together. And we're separated. Lots of, of little deaths. And perhaps for some watching today, listening to this, you're experiencing grief from the loss of a loved one, from the death of a loved one too. So the simple question we want to tackle today is this. What has Easter got to do with our, our current circumstances? How does the death of Jesus speak into the grief we are currently experiencing? We're going to look today at, at the biography of Jesus written by a guy called John, one of his friends. If you're not familiar with the, with the Bible, with Christianity, the Bible, God, in it gives us four accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And it's John's eyes that we're going to see at the life and the, the death of Jesus through today. We've just heard the description of uh, the final moments of Jesus' death, of his crucifixion, read to us. And we're going to look, as we look through John's eyes, and we stand in his shoes, watching on, we're going to look at a, a couple of things that, that John brings to the fore as he focuses in on Jesus. We're going to look at its timing, the timing of Jesus' death, and also we're going to look at the type of Jesus' death that John focuses, zooms our eyes in on. So we're going to do time of death, type of death, and then a few closing thoughts. So firstly, let's look at the time of death. 
Many of us will have watched um, medical dramas on TV, Casualty, Holby City, ER, um, Grey's Anatomy. And we'll be familiar with, with that phrase, time of death. It usually comes at the end of a heroic attempt by the medical team to, to save the life of a patient. And then with a sigh that the doctor will say, time of death, 11.44. But for us, we don't know the time of our death, do we? The only time it becomes known is the very first moment that we can't grasp it. We don't know when we're going to die. But if we did, what would we do? Perhaps we'd create a, a bucket list. Thing, a list of things we want to do before we die. Right now, um, we, we had a suggestion during this time of lockdown to, uh, as a family to, to write down the things that we're unable to do uh, because of the lockdown, places that we want to go, activities we want to do. And every time we think of one and we have to, you know, as parents say, oh, we can't do that, I'm afraid. The suggestion is, is to write those down on a post-it and then stick it in a jar so that when we get to the end of this, um, and you know, God willing, we will, then we'll be able to take out that jar and we'll have a list of activities to do. Um, it, it's a form of bucket list. Maybe you already know things that you want to do before you die. When we look at Jesus, when we look at his life, we find that he knows when his time is coming. He knows the hour. And he's not prepared to do certain things. And certain things won't happen to him until the, the time is right. Until the, the hour has arrived. As early as the second page of the story that John is writing about Jesus. We find Jesus talking about his hour or the hour. You can read about it in chapter 2 uh, of John's Gospel. Jesus is at a wedding. And the, the wine, which has been flowing freely, has run out. And there's a panic. And Jesus is at this wedding with his mum, Mary, and his disciples. And as the, the panic goes around the room, Mary turns to, to Jesus. And she looks to him for a solution to the problem. She seems to be saying, hey, you're here. You can sort this out. This is, this is why you're here, isn't it? You can do something that brings joy and happiness and benefits the people here. Listen to what Jesus says. Chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It's though Jesus is looking into the future. and He knows that there will come a time when, when he will bless all the people. He will bring a moment, or more than a moment, of great joy and happiness and fulfilment. But, but this is not it. This is certainly not the, the greatest moment. Jesus actually goes on to, to do a miracle. He turns water into wine. But in his response to, to, to Mary, his mother, he's indicated that there is a, a time, an hour yet to come, where he will do more. He will bring more blessing, more joy for the people. That's the first instance that, we, that John gives us of Jesus talking about his hour. 
Later we get a second one, a second way in which Jesus talks about the hour John uh, refers to. As Jesus goes on his, his, his journey of life and in his ministry, as he's going around speaking and healing people, opposition begins to rise. Some people love Jesus, but some people hate Jesus because of what he's saying, because of how he's saying, because of who he is. And we find this, uh, this group, this growing group of people who are opposed to Jesus and, and we're told that they want to, to take hold of Jesus. They want to, to seize him. But, here's chapter 7, verse 30. They didn't seize him, they couldn't seize him because his hour had not yet come. And then we get to chapter 12. To the opposition against Jesus his hour has not yet come. We get to chapter 12 and Jesus um, is approached by his disciples because there are a group of, of foreign visitors to, to Jerusalem who have come to, to worship God but they've heard about Jesus and they want to meet Jesus. They are sort of the first century equivalent of, of autograph hunters. Jesus is here. Oh, could we, could we get an autograph? Could we meet him? And Jesus, is, is, as the disciples come to him and tell him about these people that want to meet him, he says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what is this hour that Jesus is talking about, that he's waiting for? We've already alluded to it, it's the hour of his death, but what has John brought to our attention that this hour will bring? Here's three things, okay? Firstly, it's the moment when Jesus will act in a way that most benefits, most blesses people. This hour, secondly, is it's the moment when his enemies will seize him, will take hold of him, will in, in some ways defeat him. And then thirdly, it's the moment of supreme revelation of the glory of God. That's really religiously speak, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, think of, think of the FA Cup final. What is the moment of, of most glory? Well, it's the moment when the team, the winning team, walks up the steps to receive the trophy. The captain receives the trophy from whatever dignitary, you know, royal, is giving out the trophy that year. And he takes the cup in his hands... And he lifts it and the crowd erupts in a cheer. That this is this great moment of, of glory, of magnificence, of adulation. When Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, the hour is talks about this moment where, where everybody will recognise the greatness, the wonder of, of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says again in chapter 12, verse 23, and, and, and the few verses after that. Jesus replied to his disciples, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does it look like? Is he going to be enthroned? Is he going to be worshipped by all the people? Jesus says that the moment of, of glory, the moment of life, is death. Death that produces life. This is the hour. Not a, not a single hour, but the moment when Jesus will die. Jesus' whole life has been lived with a, a countdown clock ticking away in the background, waiting for the moment, the hour that is coming that when he would be glorified and when he would bless and benefit the people in the best, biggest way. But it would also be a moment when his enemy sees him. It would be a moment that brings life. And it is the moment, the hour, when he dies. Jesus knew that that hour was coming. His moment, his hour. Where he would at the same time suffer. The Bible tells us elsewhere that what he's suffering is the wrath of God against the wrongdoing of people, the sin of people. And as he does that, he glorifies himself, he glorifies God because his suffering is achieving life for many people. The time of Jesus' death was perfect. But secondly, let's look together at the type of death. Let's walk back into to John's story. And when we first meet Jesus, this man, in John's account, we don't hear from him first. We don't hear him speaking. We're actually being given the, the equivalent of a, uh, a neighbourly introduction in the middle of this lockdown, when we're out doing our daily exercise and we see somebody else coming and because we all know the two metre rule, we one of us shifts to the other side of the road. So it's almost what John's envisaging here. He has a, another character, Jesus' second cousin, John the Baptist, who's walking along the road and he sees Jesus. And here's what he says, chapter 1, verse 29. Look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is how we're introduced to Jesus. By somebody else seeing him and, and declaring, giving him this title. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John tells us on the next day, John the Baptist again sees Jesus. He's with two of his disciples and he says the same thing, look, the Lamb of God. So in the opening salvo of his biography of Jesus, John lays down for us this, an, this idea that Jesus is the Lamb, the Lamb who comes from God. Now, hold on to that idea for a minute. And let's consider something else that John does. John frames his entire narrative of the, the work, the life of Jesus, around the Jewish uh, festival of Passover. 
This festival will take place once a year on the, the 15th day of Nissan. Doesn't mean anything to you, doesn't mean anything to me either. Basically, in April, um, every year, the, the Jews would celebrate this festival called Passover. And the Passover uh, is, a, is a festival, is a, a meal to remember what God had done in their past, how God had rescued them from slavery. The, the Israelite people had gone into Egypt for, for refuge during a famine, had become in Egypt a great nation. And because the, the Egyptian king had begun to fear them as they grown, he enslaved them. And the story of Exodus in the Bible tells uh, the story of how God rescues his people. And, and how does he do it? Well, he sends plagues on, on Egypt, on the Egyptian people, to, 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 to cause them to, to realise that he is God, that he is in charge, and that they can't defy him. Ten plagues are sent. And the final one is the, the plague of the, the death of the firstborn. Again and again. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, opposes God. Says, yeah, I'll let your people go. And then changes, excuse me, he changes his mind. And God sends stronger and stronger judgments. Until eventually we come to the tenth plague. And God says, I will strike down every firstborn in Egypt. But God, in his mercy, provides a way for his people to escape that judgment. The story doesn't say that his people are good and the Egyptians were bad. It says that when God comes in judgment, he is utterly fair. But God is merciful towards his people. He says, I'll give you a way out. And it comes through the provision of a lamb. They are to take a lamb and to slaughter an, an innocent lamb and to daub the blood of the lamb on the doorway of their homes. So that when God sent his, his angel to kill the firstborn, the angel would see the blood and pass over the house. That's the, the story that they, the, the, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, were remembering. So every year, every family, every household would sit down for a meal and reenact the Passover. So they would take a lamb and they would kill it and they would remember and retell the story of God's kindness and grace to them. God passed over our descendants, they would say, because he saw the blood of the lamb. And John bases his, his narrative of the life of Jesus around the Passover. That gives us the, the, the time scale for the events that take place. So he describes the first Passover in chapter 2 through to chapter 4. And then a second Passover in chapter 6. And then finally, at the end of chapter 11, he tells us about a third Passover as Jesus comes to Jerusalem and where he will end up dying and crucified. And the resurrection, all that takes place during the, the third Passover that, that John mentions. And that keeps the idea of the Passover lamb firmly fixed in our, our minds as we approach Jerusalem with Jesus as these events take place that we've heard read of the death of Jesus it's during the time of the Passover and so John has given us two 
two, two pointers towards this idea of what type of death is it that Jesus dies? The Lamb of God and the Passover Lamb. Two elements of one thing. John is trying to wave in our faces. What type of death is this? Well, the death at the conclusion of this story of Jesus is a Passover death. It's one where God frees his chosen people. The death at the conclusion of this story is the death of the Lamb of God. The innocent dying in place of the guilty. Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Lamb from God. The Lamb who is God. Who gives his life to take away the sin of the world. He bears the guilt and punishment. Deserved by people. Deserved by us. If we will believe in him. If we will believe in him. If we will trust in him. If we will admit and own that our wrongdoing against God needs punishing. If ultimately we will accept the sacrifice. So we've looked at the, the time of Jesus' death. We've looked at the type of Jesus' death. And so we return to that earlier question. How does the death of Jesus speak into the grief that we are currently experiencing? Well, let me say two things. If we are trusting in Jesus, if Jesus has died in our place, there are two hopes for us. Firstly this, as we believe in him, we have no fear, and we should have no fear that God is angry with us, that God is seeking to punish us. Because God has already punished our sin in Jesus. We are forgiven. We have peace with God and therefore we should have and can have peace now in our hearts. That current circumstances are not God's displeasure with us. We stand right with God because the Lamb has been slain on our behalf. And secondly... We can face physical death knowing that it is not the end. That life awaits on the other side. On the other shore of the river of death there is for us a welcome and life everlasting. And that brings an, an eternal perspective to today's troubles. This is not all that there is. But as I close, let me speak to you if you are, if you find yourself in a position watching this where you think, oh, I don't know Jesus. And you talk about believing in and trusting him. That's not me. Let me quote to you one more bit of, of John's account of the life of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 16, he writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life we're going to think more about what that eternal life life is next week so do come back but but notice 
how that verse sums up for us the offer. It's life instead of death. Because God has loved us. So the question is, in that verse, are you going to perish? Are you going to, to die? And not just physical death, we're all physically going to die. But do you still stand in a place where you are not, you're not right with God? You are still deserving of God's punishment. And the question is, are you a sinner? What is sin? Sin is the, the blanket term for, for the wrong done by people against God. Let me put it in these terms. Sin is not obeying the laws that have been given to us that is designed to keep us safe and to help us to, to flourish and to keep others safe and to help them to flourish. Sin is saying and believing that the lawgiver is wicked or selfish or, 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 or unkind or, or simply stupid. Sin is a heart attitude and a life action attitude which says, I don't need God, and I don't like God, and I don't want God. And that heart attitude being played out is the way we live. Some of us do that by saying, I don't need God because I'm good enough. Some of us do that by saying, I don't need God, I can do whatever I want. Perhaps even today you're feeling the weight of your sin. Maybe you've never even thought about there being a God. But you're aware that you are not who you ought to be. And even today I encourage you to turn to Jesus. To look at his death and realise that that death, that death was so that you might have life. That God's desire is to bring you back to himself. To restore you. To take away the burden of sin. To take away the punishment, the condemnation that you rightly deserve. And for all those that come to Jesus, they will find rest and peace and forgiveness. Remember where we, we started a few minutes ago. Love is now mingled with grief. Never was love so intertwined with grief than at the cross of Jesus. His love for you meant that he suffered immeasurably for you. And in his life, there is love for you. And in his love, there is life for you. And we'll think more about that next week. Perhaps you're not ready yet to, to, to put your trust in Jesus. Let me encourage you. Why don't you read more about it? Read more of John's account of the life of Jesus. Maybe you've got questions. Do get in touch. Either by the, the comment section on the, the bottom of the YouTube page or drop us an email. Find our church website, rotherham.ec. We're on Facebook as well. Get in touch. We'd love to, to answer your questions if we can. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. Let me pray as we close.
Father, would you use this message, these words that I've spoken to help us to truly see and appreciate the death of Jesus? Would you bring us to Jesus that we may no longer fear death and that we might have life in his name? We pray these things in his name. Amen.